0: Good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by SurvePro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom.
1: Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, I am honored to once again have joining me a person who has had a very interesting life in the political sphere. Mr. Bob Clement was raised in large part at the governor's residence as he was the son of three-term Tennessee governor Frank Clement. As such, he was at the center of Tennessee history in the making in the 1950s and 60s. Mr. Clement learned the value of public service at an early age. After graduating from the University of Tennessee as an ROTC student and the University of Memphis, Mr. Clement was commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Army. Mr. Clement would eventually serve 29 years in the Tennessee National Guard, retiring as a colonel. Mr. Clement began his career in public service when he was only 29 years old, becoming the youngest statewide officeholder in the history of Tennessee. Later, he was appointed as a director of the Tennessee Valley Authority by President Jimmy Carter. He was later named the president of Cumberland University to the great success of that institution. Elected to the United States House of Representatives in 1987, where he spent the next 15 years, Mr. Clement, a Democrat, was known as a bipartisan member, often voting with the opposition on issues he championed. He served on the House Transportation, Foreign Affairs, Budget, and Veterans Affairs Committees. He also founded and co-chaired the Education Caucus. After leaving Congress, Clement formed Clement & Associates, a public affairs consulting firm in Nashville, Tennessee. Mr. Clement is also the author of the acclaimed political memoir, Presidents, Kings, and Convicts, My Journey from the Tennessee Governor's Residence, to the Halls of Congress, published by Archway Publishing in 2016. Mr. Clement, welcome back to History's Hook. Tom, great being with you. I'm also joined in the studio once again by Mr. Zach Kinslow. Zach is the director of the Clement Railroad Hotel Museum in Dixon, Tennessee, the birthplace of Governor Frank Clement. Welcome back to History's Hook, Zach. Glad to be here. And of course, once again, we have my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcomb, professor of history at Columbia State Community College. Hello, Barry. Hello, Tom. First off, Mr. Clement, thank you once again for joining us on History's Hook. Before we continue with your life story, what advice would you give to a young person who might be thinking of entering public service today?
2: You know, I have a lot of young people contact me and want to talk to me or interview me or come see me, and I'm pleased to talk with them because I, I we just have too many people sitting on the sidelines these days uh, that are... Spectators rather than participators. And I want young people to get involved in politics and public service, and I'm very discouraged tom with the campaign laws being what it is and uh supreme court decisions about no limits on campaign spending uh, we need limits on campaign spending to give the average person the opportunity to run and win and critically important for the future but i do uh, reach out to young people and i do speak to a lot of uh uh schools and, and Civic clubs and all that, and uh, and I ask, uh, I tell them, I I think the Statue of limitations is run. Uh, ask me anything, personal, political, or professional that'll that'll help you. But a lot of them want to know how how you get started, and there's not any particular way to get started. And naturally, the more people you know will help you. Getting a good education, and I sure stress that, is critically important to prepare. My father did as governor. Here he had no contacts. Uh, He didn't have any money, but he had big dreams. And so I'd like to think a lot of young people would look at it that way uh, get a good education uh, prepare yourself uh, join civic clubs or uh, youth groups or etc uh, get and uh, get involved in helping other people when you help other people uh, you're surely helping yourself.
1: What in your opinion are the qualities that make up the most successful
2: politicians? The uh, most successful uh, you know I you know it doesn't matter what profession uh i know in congress the number one professions lawyers i'm not a lawyer I, uh i escaped that everybody everyone in my family's an attorney but me but uh whether you're a plumber or electrician or a farmer or an educator uh business person uh i I, I, we need all, people from all walks of life uh, being involved in the political process, not just one profession.
1: Um We spent a good part of the previous episode on your early life and the life of your father, of course. Let's recap your life up to where we ended our previous episode. You were born in 1943, the son and one of three children of Lucille and Frank Clement. Your father was a three-time governor of Tennessee and one of the most charismatic politicians in American history. You grew up in the governor's residence, getting to meet some of the most influential people in American history, after attending the University of Tennessee and Memphis State University, you joined the military, becoming an Army officer. Your father, who you described as your greatest mentor, died in a tragic automobile accident in 1969 at the age of 49. You were, uh, as you wrote in your book, devastated but managed to pick yourself up and move forward. Nonetheless, I'd like to start today talking a little bit about your military career. Mm -hmm. You joined in the 1960s as the United States was ramping up its involvement in the Vietnam War. What were your thoughts on American policy in Southeast Asia at the time? And were you worried about being sent to Vietnam?
2: Well, that's that's a very interesting uh, question. And uh, and yes, I did serve, and I was in the ROTC at University of Tennessee, as you mentioned, and uh, I also knew with uh, a draft number of 43 out of 365, uh, I was going to be called. And the question was whether I was going to, because we had a draft at that time, whether I was going to go in as a buck private or a, Officer, and I said, I believe I'll stay in college and get my college degree and be commissioned a second lieutenant, which I was. I, I was not pleased at all, even before I went in the U.S. Army, and I sure wasn't after uh, getting in the U.S. Army about Southeast Asia and uh, particularly about our involvement in uh, Vietnam. I did not like the way we fought the war. We fought the war of containment. We did not fight a war to win. And I think there's a big question, too, whether we should have uh, been fighting over there at all, because I know at that time we were concerned about the Chinese taking over all of Southeast Asia. And I, I think there probably have been better ways, and we spent an awful lot of money, and and uh, that seemed to apply to that second Iraqi war, which we might talk about as well, but uh, but uh, I I did have r- real reservations, but but I did serve because I was going to serve my country and serve it honorably. I wasn't going to go to Canada or wherever else, and and uh, then I took. I had my shots and went through the Vietnam orientation course. And, you were preparing to go. And I was prepared. I was supposed to be in the in-country 4th of January 1970, and it was still really hot over in Vietnam. And then when they took me off orders, then I had about 10 months left on active duty and, I, and, and because I'd come home to try to help my mother and my Brothers and all that with Dad's death, but then I I volunteered for Vietnam and then they uh, OPO and uh, Department of Defense wanted me to to extend. I said well because they said you need to spend at least twelve months or more in Vietnam rather than ten months which I had left on active duty. I said I don't believe I want to go that bad, <laughs> so I never did. One of
1: the duties that you had as an army officer was to inform soldiers that they were going to be deployed to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It must have been a tough assignment.
2: Well, I was at the Civil Affairs School, and uh, we sent uh, a number of people from the Civil Affairs School to Vietnam, part of the pacification program, uh, and uh, try to work with the villagers and and uh, that's that's what I did, and yeah, I, matter of fact, my sergeant, Sergeant Perkins, is the one that informed me after I informed everybody else. Sergeant Perkins says, uh, Lieutenant Clement, I got some news for you. I said, well, what's your news? He says, you're going to Vietnam. I said, I said, Sarge, I hadn't eaten lunch yet. Uh, I, don't tease with me about that he said i'm not teasing <laughs> so uh, that was an experience i bet it was
1: uh you attended graduate school at memphis state and were in that city when martin luther king jr was killed uh what do you remember of that day
2: yeah that was unbelievable uh i mean it and i'll tell you uh memphis handled it well uh Too compared to Ferguson and other places, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you better be off the roads, off the streets, or you got arrested. Here at Ferguson, they had people, curfew was at midnight at night. You know there's a lot of trouble going to happen then. But, I mean, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, I mean, Memphis was shut down because there was a real concern the whole the entire city would be, devastated be burned down but i will say for black brothers and sisters and uh, and all that they they the vast majority came to the rescue because they did not want pillaging and looting and destroying and uh, and kept it from happening
1: just 3 years after you lost your father you had left the army you decided to throw your hat into the political ring a seat on the Tennessee Public Service Commission. You, at 28, took on and beat the longtime incumbent in the primary, then took on the Republican candidate, State Senate Minority Leader Tom Garland, in the general election. How prepared were you? To make a run at such a young age.
2: Well, I was very prepared and uh, very hungry too, and I—I I really was always there to help my father in his uh, political campaigns. But when he died, and and I came home, and uh, and what I guess what spurred me on a little bit too is that, that I'd ask uh, the Public Service Commission uh, Chairman Fowler for a job, and uh, this doesn't happen very often. For for various folks, and and uh, and I didn't get a call back. And then about a week, then I went to work for the University of Tennessee. And about about a week before I announced, I got a call from the Public Service Commission. We believe we found you a job. Hmm at the Public Service Commission, I said, well, I'm real happy where I am. I wasn't going to settle level with anyone at that time. And then a week later, I announced, So my adrenaline was flowing real good. (laughs) And, as a matter of fact, we carried every county, and uh, with the exception of two or three precincts, we carried every precinct in the state of Tennessee, and, Got 70 plus percent of the vote against an incumbent, so uh, we did rather well. I suspect
1: this wasn't a spur of the moment decision. What age were you when you decided that public service might be an option for you?
2: As a kid, uh, I I think I did it 10 years old. Uh, You know, I did when I was very young. I knew I had to prepare myself and. I had to learn a lot, get a good education, and do all that. But I knew uh, that I felt like I had a special gift to work with people to solve problems and work through the bureaucracy and solve problems, and uh, that's what I did. What did you learn from your father? Well, I I learned from my father, well, one, to listen when people— talk to you. You know, a lot of people, a lot of politicians, they're looking at the next person rather than looking at you. And listen to what's being said and uh, and tune in. And I think that's been uh, very helpful to me because everybody comes from different backgrounds and interests and all that. And uh, that was big. Big help, and and then, uh, gosh, as a member, well, even on the public service commission, I'll never forget. uh, I ran on the platform that eliminate the eight-party lines in Tennessee. We had a fifty-five thousand families on eight-party lines when I ran here. Here, here, we'd already sent a man to the moon, and here I had some communities had no telephone service. Here should you're gonna be ha- a necessity. You're going to have to explain to some and of then, our listeners what a party line I is. And I said, you elect Bob Clement, we're going to eliminate all eight party lines in Tennessee. Right. Now, I will say, Tom, some of the people sort of like their eight party lines because they're <laughs> lower rates. Oh, so right. So it's uh, – that's, uh, but very few, but Ex- the vast
1: majority. Explain to our listeners what a party line is, because many of them are going to... That's gonna eight
2: run. families on one line. All sharing so, a single line. A single line, yeah. It, and
1: it, you could you hear what even, your neighbor was saying.
2: That's right, that's right. That's before cell phones and all that. Right.
1: <laughs> uh, you won the election, making you the youngest person ever to be elected to a state office in the entire history of Tennessee. Pretty amazing. What was the what was the public service commission, and what was your role in that? Well, body?
2: public service commission, statewide uh, office. Uh, there were three commissioners, all elected statewide, and uh, we regulated your private. In investor owned utilities such as your telephone companies uh, your railroads your trucking lines uh, and then some gas companies that were private investor owned not your municipally not utility districts but all your private investor on rates and services so if they wanted a rate increase they had to come before us or if they or service and that applied to trucks. Uh, for regulation. Any intrastate uh, within the state of Tennessee uh, had to have their uh, trucking authority uh, approved through the Tennessee Public Service.
1: I would imagine that gave you a fair amount of authority having a position uh, like
2: that. That was a powerful position. Unfortunately, years after I left The state legislature abolished it, and the Tennessee regulatory authority, which had much less authority than 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 we had, we had real authority at that particular. In April of
1: 1978, you made the momentous decision to run for governor. What were your thoughts? What was your thought process in making that decision?
2: Well, I, I had served six years on the public service commission, and I was still really really young. And uh, as my grandmother, Maybelle from Dixon, Tennessee, says, Bob, uh, you were older than your dad, but you look so much younger. And after the race was over and we barely lost by. 30,000 votes on a statewide race, and I wonder, what in the world did I do wrong? So we did a poll survey and said, Clement, you ran a good campaign, you're well organized, you had a good message, but you look too young. I said, oh my gosh, I could have put a little prematurely gray hair there, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but uh, I I didn't let that defeat me. I, a lot of people give up and all that, but I I wasn't going to let that happen. I regrouped and reorganized.
1: Your, your campaign was an interesting one. And I suspect you sort of took a play from your dad's playbook. You were able to use the connections you had made in your various facets of life to your advantage and managed to form a capable staff. That included future congressmen, a future chief of staff to President Reagan and others.
2: Um uh, did being the son of Governor Frank
1: Clement help you or hurt you publicly? Well,
2: I said in the campaign, I don't want anyone to vote for me because my father's Frank Clement was Frank Clement, but I don't want anyone to vote against me because he was, you know, vote for me because you believe I can do a good job and make a difference. Uh but it was a tough campaign, and uh holly i had it was a very crowded field in the primary, and as I said uh, we almost we came real close to winning but uh, but there are no seconds <laughs> right. you know, all or nothing but you, you uh, lost to Jake but it Butcher. was a it was a, to Jake Butcher, and he ended up you know going to the penitentiary, and part of it had to do with that race, is that right, yeah? He lost. He in lost, the general election and to Lamar, Lamar Alexander, Alexander right uh, defeated uh, got the Republican nomination and defeated uh, Jake Butcher.
1: What was the biggest thing you learned from losing an election?
2: Well, you know, you always think that when you win, that you've done everything right, which is wrong. And then when you lose, you think everything you've done is wrong, and that's not correct either. Uh, but I do think you probably learn more from uh, losing than winning, uh, and uh, and it and uh, but so many people I, I mean I get so negative after they lose, you know, thinking everybody's against you, and all that, and it's just not that way. I mean, it's a it's a snapshot, a snapshot of that particular moment you could run the day before the day after and you might have different results hmm. uh and uh, so there's no
1: one way to run and no, a successful and time, campaign
2: timing is everything hmm. and uh, and at times in my life uh I, I could have chosen better times to run or not run and uh, and and that hurts and uh because but you, but a lot of times you don't know you know i you talk about I just wish the Lord, Lord, I felt like I, I prayed about it, but Lord maybe wanted me to run but didn't want me to win. Uh, you know, you you got to look at it a lot of different ways sure. or, and not judge yourself too harshly That, uh, and, and still believe in this country and this state. we we got too much to be proud of, and, and it doesn't shine on the same dog every day
1: even though you weren't successful in that particular run, you kind of made a name for yourself. People were paying attention to your race and to your career. You were appointed by President Carter to the TVA board.
2: Yeah, that happened. I didn't plan that. A lot of things I didn't plan. But after I lost the governor's race, uh, Governor Ned Ray McWhorter and uh, U.S. Senator Jim Sasser, uh uh, uh, uh approached uh, President Jimmy Carter, you know, you ought to appoint Bob Clement to the TVA board because Public Service Commission is is on a state level when it comes to regulation of utilities and uh, comparable to what the TVA, even though TVA is much more vast, and server, serves part of seven states. And uh, gosh, when I was there, we had a, 6 billion dollar budget and uh 55,000 employees and three of us making those decisions. That's incredible. It is. How old incredible. were you at that point? Gosh, I was in my mid
1: mid-30s. Your confirmation to the TVA board was an interesting process. You were filling an unexpired term for just two years, a full term being nine, but you were pressured, threatened, might not be too strong a word (laughs) from some political
2: circles. Well, uh, uh, I've I've sort of made a mistake during the the confirmation, uh, and this is before the hearings, and And the public, uh, the local media asked me the question, says, uh, Mr. Clement, where should the TVA headquarters be? Because there was a question whether it should be in Tennessee or somewhere else, because we serve seven states. I said, well, it's always been in Tennessee. I think it ought to remain in Tennessee. That's all Senator Heflin needed in Alabama. Because northern Alabama has a lot of TVA facilities, and boy, he went on the attack. And I mean really on the attack to keep me off the TVA board. And he he, uh, he wanted me to recuse myself and uh, from voting on whether to move the headquarters from Tennessee to another state. And I said, I'm not going to do that. And he said, if you don't, I'm going to. I'm going to keep you off the board. But when it came to a vote, it was 99 to 1 uh, to approve me on the TVA board. And I will say for Senator Heflin from Alabama, after the fact, he came up to me, he says, uh, I want to, he said, the war is over. And I couldn't have asked for a better uh, member to stand by me for the next two years as a member of the TVA board than Senator Heflin, Alabama.
1: You got to visit President Carter in the White House. He he had an official ceremony for you? Yeah, when he, he took over did. That position.
2: He sure did.
1: Interesting. What, what kind of a man is he?
2: A wonderful, very personable uh, skill. I, matter of fact, I was with him not long ago. I, matter of fact, I even went to Plains, my wife and I, and we spent some time with him in Plains. And then I we've had him... Since then, at uh, Nashville, you know, Habitat for Humanities, and matter of fact, not on this last time, but before that, I sponsored one of the houses, and the house I sponsored for President Carter, we built it in four hours, 39 minutes, and eight seconds. Good night. We set the world's record. And I was trying to get it in the Guinness book, or Guinness book, and I, and I didn't get it fast enough, and a group from Europe beat my record. <laughs> Four hours, 39 minutes, and eight seconds built a house. Incredible. The foundation was there, but we built everything else.
1: Amazing. What did you manage to accomplish during your tenure with TVA?
2: Well, TVA, uh, more than anything, uh, uh, I went on the... Attack. We were building 17 re- nuclear reactors at one time. We were overbuilding, overprojecting. I, I don't really think we'd have lost TVA. And TVA, from the 30s on, has been very helpful to our growth and economic development in the seven-state region. And uh, and But I felt like we were overbuilding, overprojecting, and... Uh, and I wanted to curtail part of the nuclear program, and we ultimately did. And, uh, and that needed to happen because it was just too expensive, and the power was not needed.
1: We need to take a break. We'll continue our story with former Com- Congressman Bob Clement. You're listening to History's Hook.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by Pro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro. With your host, Tom Price is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're joined in the studio by Mr. Bob Clement, former congressman from Middle Tennessee. I'm also joined by Zach Kinslow, the director of the Clement Railroad Museum, uh, Hotel Museum in Dixon, Tennessee, and of course, Barry Gidcombe. I'm Tom Price. Mr. Clement, you returned to the private sector uh, following your tenure in TVA, following uh, President Reagan's election, but not for long. It seems public service kept calling you. In 1982, you ran for the seventh congressional district seat and nearly flipped that solidly Republican stronghold, but ended up narrowly losing to Don Sunquist, who would later become governor of Tennessee. It was then that you were courted by Cumberland University to become president.
2: Uh, how did all that come about? Well, I—that's I, another one I didn't consider. Uh, I got a call one day. They had a search committee at Cumberland University, located in Lebanon, and of all things, my father and about five members of my family had graduated from Cumberland University, and they were looking for a new president, and uh, so uh, they asked me if I would be interested, and and and, and I thought about what I had said in. In at Knoxville when I was a student at the University of Tennessee, and I told some of my fellow students, you know, one day I hope I have an opportunity to be president of a college. <laughs> Never knowing I'd have that opportunity. And I applied, and golly, we had some great candidates. And I was 14, you're, you're a non-academic. 14, you, you yeah, non-academic. But at that particular time tom they were looking for someone that knew how to manage people and resources and number two to raise money because uh cumberland university had fallen on hard times and it had moved from a four-year college to a two-year college and dying and so i saved the college and moved it from a two-year to a four-year college and got it fully accredited and we uh Double the educational income and triple the uh, the uh, financial uh, resources for the college. So it worked. Uh, it's pretty amazing, and it's doing very it. well now. We got a a great president, and uh, he's uh, he's taken us to a new level.
1: It's a college that's been around since the eighteen forties. Eighteen
2: forty three. Yeah.
1: Uh, pretty pretty interesting, and as you said, in that time you got it reaccredited back to a four-year university. It had been that at one time and then downgraded, so to speak, uh, to a two-year school. You tripled the private gifts donated and doubled the educational income from tuition and research grants. You expanded the university's curriculum options and doubled the number of students and attracted a more diverse student body as well. You improved the physical plant. I've had people come to me and say, I remember when Cumberland University looked terrible, that the Mm. grass was waist high and uh, the buildings were crumbling, uh, and put the university really on a solid footing that it really still enjoys today. Uh, You mentioned that was one of the happiest times in your life. You were young parents, you and your wife at that point in time. Your children were uh, still relatively young.
2: What prompted you to leave? Well, my second child uh, was born there, Rachel. Rachel. And uh, Liz, uh, Elizabeth and Rachel, and we we were really had a great time. We lived on campus as well. No, I was very happy and very challenged, but, but Bill Boner uh, uh, wanted to give up his uh, congressional seat and uh, run for mayor, and that's where I almost made a mistake <laughs> because I've taken too many political risks in my life, and I'm well aware of it. But... Uh, but what happened was, Bill almost lost. To Phil Braddison was his opponent, but Boner bet, beat Braddison, and uh, and that opened up the seat. And uh, I I did resign early, thinking Boner was going to win, and he almost didn't win. <laughs> but when when that happened, uh, then I ran, and I did hadn't planned on Braddison and Jane Eskin and some. He running in that race as well but they did and uh, it was not an easy race but but uh, we won and got to serve eight term 15 years
1: yeah let, let's talk about this race a, a little bit this is 1987 and you're running for the fifth district uh, at this point in time what counties were represented by the fifth district?
2: davidson and robertson county that's springfield
1: That district had some pretty prestigious alumni, among them Andrew Jackson and Sam Houston, uh, to name a few. Uh, And historically, it was solidly Democrat, uh, that region, making the primary really the chief point of concern in this election. You had 12 opponents in the race, as you mentioned, some of them pretty heavy hitters in Tennessee politics. Phil Bredesen is one you mentioned who would go on to be later governor of Tennessee uh, who were some of the others uh, in that race? Walter
2: Searcy uh, ran, jo- Joanne North, who was in county uh, official, and uh, and then uh, Boner's uh, administrative assistant ran as well. So we had a lot of people wanted that seat, which was not surprising.
1: How close was the election?
2: Well, I think I ended up winning somewhere between three and 5,000 votes. Close. In the primary, it was a special election, so the primary was in December, and the general election was in January of eighty eight Can you describe what it was like to be
1: a freshman congressman? What does it feel like to well to it, the national stage you know
2: I was all by myself because being in a special election it was only a class of one, so uh then starting to vote immediately. And to be given a voting card with no orientation, no nothing. I mean, it was a, it, it was an ordeal. Uh, but and then having to put your staff together and uh, and I put a lot of a lot of Tennesseans and a few that were not from Tennessee that knew uh, the the system rather well in Washington D.C. because you. you We really hire a different type person in the district in the state than you do in Washington because in Washington you're working on bills, introducing bills, and at home you're working on constituency issues such as Social Security and Veterans Affairs, et cetera. Sure.
1: Uh, in your first term, you managed to do an unusual thing. You got some major legislation passed in the Noise Reduction Reimbursement Act.
2: Explain yeah, what that it was. was. It meant about $100 million plus to the Nashville airport and uh, make us a first-class airport and solve the noise problems, which was a huge problem at that time. You don't think about it today, but it was at that time, and that's one of the first things we did, as well as we uh, did a lot on the Nashville VA Hospital, to uh, as well as the other veterans' hospitals to help in that area. And then I changed, helped. Changed the formula. I was on the transportation committee, and I noticed we we were only getting three hundred and sixty million dollars a year in federal dollars for transportation, and other states were doing a lot better than us, but smaller. And I wondered why is that? And what was happening was the North and the East were were uh, were able to benefit uh, because of the old formula. At the benefit of the South and the West, and the population shift was to the South and the West, had more population for the first time than the North and the East. Hmm. But we were operating under the old formula. We got that formula changed, and we went from $360 million in federal dollars to $800 million, Hmm. almost overnight.
1: You also felt some terrible tragedy. With the loss of two chiefs of staff during your time? Yeah,
2: I did. Uh, Golly, the first one uh, I had, Tom Stinger. uh, And matter of fact, he was with me at Cumberland University. And he was my chief of staff. And first year came down with cancer, mid 30s, and died. The second one was Alex Halt. And uh, Alex was a great politician, great person, great. From Tennessee, and uh, Alex uh, came in one day, and this was when Al Gore was getting ready to run for president. and He says, and Al Gore had called me too, and asked me to give him, give Alex Holt, my chief of staff, a sixty-day uh, all off his job, and uh, and 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 so I gave him uh, opportunity to work in the Gore campaign. 60 days, just to, just, just, but he didn't have to resign, but uh, leave of absence. Sure. So I gave him a leave of absence the first 30 days in Nashville. He was just coming out of a side street on Broadway and at Marigold's restaurant, and a drunk had been arrested over 50 times, hit his car, rammed it into Marigold's restaurant. Mm -hmm. Alex Holt lost his life. Terrible. And he was in his mid-30s as well.
1: You describe both of them as really pretty incredible young men. Incredible young men. With important...
2: Very important, and had, both of them had an unbelievable uh, future ahead of them. It's just major tragedy.
1: I wanted to remember them today. Arguably, the most important decision during the George H.W. Bush presidency was the Gulf War. Iraq, led by Saddam Hussein, attacked Kuwait, seriously threatening the global economy. Casting a vote that sends young men and women into harm's way is a momentous thing. Did you support the decision to go to war, and how did it feel to debate and make that vote?
2: Well, the first Iraqi war was not tough at all because Saddam Hussein had moved into Kuwait and uh, and what they would have done with the concentration of power and money and oil, we had to drive him out of Kuwait. And, but we weakened him significantly, from the first Iraqi war. And I I really felt good about that decision. The second Iraqi war, I did not. And I had a lot of reservations, and I was planning on voting against it, but George W. Bush, Bush 43, kept saying uh, that Saddam had biological, chemical, nuclear capability, and... uh, he seemed to be backed up for a while from the intelligence uh, c- uh, uh, reports and all that, which was not true, and later proved not true. And so we voted on it with bad information. And I voted reluctantly uh, to go to war. I wish I hadn't. What I think, in my opinion, it was worse vote I ever cast. And we spent $3 trillion on that crazy war. And I would have loved to have had that $3 trillion for health care and transportation and education in the United States.
1: Let, let's come back to to that one in just a minute. I think there are a number of uh, important questions I think we need to, to ask about that. Uh, let's go back uh, just a, a little bit Um, after the first Gulf War in 1994, we saw really a critical shift in American politics. Newt Gingrich and his leadership team sought to jumpstart the Republican Party after they took over the majority in the House that year. Describe what that was like as a Democrat uh, in the midst of this. You see an increased power of the Speaker. Uh, He was appointing leadership. You said there was a real shift in how Congress was run at that point in time.
2: No doubt about it. Uh, And I I will say for Newt, I I don't know of anyone that can say more and fewer words than Newt Gingrich. He's very effective on the stomp. But when he took over as Speaker, uh, some of us were hoping that he was going to be fair, but he, he felt like in order for the Republicans to stay in power, he had to blow up all the bridges, and he had to just absolutely destroy uh, rather than build, and that's what he did. And uh, I, I mean, he was he was vicious about it too. One and, of the things you mentioned, and I I really think uh, what's even happening today has been a carryover from. 1994 about when Newt Gingrich took over as speaker and I don't think it's been the same since.
1: You wrote very effectively about it in your book. There were several major changes. He He increased the power of the speaker. You said prior to him most of the leadership positions came with some level of seniority within Congress, but he switched it around where the speaker had the ability to appoint whoever he wanted. So you can sort of stack the deck. This hundred-day pledge, this idea of accomplishing so much within the first hundred days uh, was, was sort of a new idea as well. Uh, you mentioned the loss of institutional knowledge with a uh, turnover and the use of seniority and leadership positions. You're kind of losing some of that congressional institutional knowledge. The shorter work week, you said, was a huge one.
2: Yeah, uh, it really was, uh, because we w- used to work from Monday to Friday when I was there. And, and then uh, <laughs> they changed it Uh, and shortened the schedule flying on Tuesday and leave on Thursday. Well, I think it was done purposely because if I don't know you and you don't know me, then you don't feel any obligation or commitment to work with me on on anything, on any issue. And that's what we've had since then, is that uh, members just don't know other members. It's the antithesis of your father's And it used to be members really knew one another. I mean, and you had a lot of institutional knowledge.
1: Right. Uh, It's the antithesis of your father's political viewpoint, where... You know, you need to shake hands. You need to know people. That's it, right. Re, politics is about relationships. But if you
2: don't, have, don't know a person, you, you're not going to work with them. You're not going to help them. And uh, you're not going to reach across the aisle. And that's what we have today.
1: And it creates a rise in deep partisanship, I think, which, as you deep said, is, is very much where we are where we are today, uh, you spent a good portion of your time in Congress during the Clinton administration. What is your opinion of his presidency?
2: You know, I like Bill Clinton a lot and uh, and remember, I served under four presidents uh, uh, president reagan and uh, and uh, the two bushes and uh, Bill Clinton, and uh, well, I spent a lot of time with Bill Clinton, too, and uh, I was over at the White House regularly, because, well, remember, I was a Democrat, and he was a Democrat, and that makes a difference, too, even though I had, with President uh, Reagan, uh, and uh, as well as Bush 41, I worked with them a lot, as well, not as much as 43, uh, the second Bush, but but I did have the opportunity to work with the others. But Bill Clinton, uh, he really knew this country, and uh, and we even had a balanced budget in his administration as well. You know, we talk about balanced budget these days, and what was am- what's amazing too is there wasn't an hour. When I was there for 15 years, that people wouldn't, members would not talk on the floor of the House about a, a national debt or budget deficits, and it's hardly mentioned now. But it was always mentioned then, and here we're facing now a $30 trillion uh, national debt, and there is a day of reckoning.
1: September 11th is probably the beginning of that change in fiscal policy. Uh, you were in Washington that day can you describe that yeah
2: day? i was and i'll never forget that either i, I was really at home first and, and watched it on on the, that early that morning and uh, I, 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 I the first plane and it was one set of circumstances but when that second plane went down i knew we were in for some real trouble and so i rushed to the Capitol. On on my way in because I lived in lived in Virginia, between Old Town Alexandria and Mount Vernon, I saw the Pentagon burning, and uh, by the time I got to my and I couldn't get to my office uh, by phone because all the phones were out. And but when I got to my office, nobody was there. Pocketbook still left. Every I mean everyone mm. evacuated. Matter of fact, security had already told me get out of the building after I arrived, uh, because uh, there's a plane headed our direction. But there was so much confusion outside, I did not leave. I may have been the only one left at the U.S. US Capitol, but I, I stayed, and I stayed on the phone and tried to stay in touch as much as possible, and uh, and then we know that plane went down in Pennsylvania that was to hit... Uh, Hit the Capitol.
1: I was fascinated that your instinct was to go to the Capitol, whereas everybody who was in Washington was, and rightly so, well, getting yeah, out. in fact, the guard told you, I What are you doing? <laughs> I
2: couldn't get a hold of anybody. Uh, communications were all down. We did improve the communications after that, where that didn't happen again.
1: There were a number of changes in Congress as a result of 9-11, yes. uh, something that was used just in the last couple of weeks. Gas masks were placed mm-hmm. under the seats of... Mm-hmm. Of congressmen
2: but it's still surprising what just happened is uh, why the Capitol Police were not better prepared uh, that's something that really needs to be looked at because everyone knew all these people were coming to Washington DC and why the Capitol Police uh, were not uh, more prepared with all the codes and conversation about what could happen and uh, but not enough was done to protect the buildings and mostly, mostly protect the people.
1: What were the greatest lessons you learned from your time in Congress? Fifteen years there.
2: Fifteen years, golly. I, there's no job uh, I've enjoyed more than being a member of Congress uh, and uh, knowing the world. Because I've had opportunity to travel the world because... The United States is the superpower on Earth. Now, that's going to change. It's going to be the United States and the People's Republic of China will be the two great superpowers in in the near future, if not already. But... uh, but as I, I, as you stated I served on foreign affairs committee and transportation budget committee and affairs so I had a lot of exposure a lot of information and uh I, but I before voting I tried my best to get information from all sources to make the most uh, educated uh, Best vote, but you have to realize in every piece of legislation you have a lot of things you like, like things you dislike. Then you have to decide is it more that you like or dislike prior to making a decision, because it's because it's always a compromise if it's good legislation. Uh,
1: Zach Kinslow, the director of the uh, Clement uh, Railroad Hotel Museum in Dixon, Tennessee, you you spent. Uh, Time while you were still in school, and then a little bit after, mm-hmm. and helping to interpret the life of the 11th President yeah. James K. Polk. Now you're interpreting another political family in Tennessee. Yeah. What are, what are some similarities, would you say, between the the Clements of Tennessee and, and the Polks of Tennessee? Well, uh, they're Tennesseans. Uh,
3: <laughs> number one, I, I don't know how well we could compare. Um, s- James Polk was nowhere near as charismatic as as Frank Clement uh, or much anyone else was for that for that matter um one of the things i've noticed speaking with with bob and and learning about his career and his father's career and then comparing that to my earlier um work on on the polks uh is that emphasis on education and hard work and dedication uh that both both men frank clement james polk um the polk family uh, greater polk family and the clement family they all put a big emphasis on that education, that hard work, that staying on task.
1: Work ethic and service are two things that come. public service come yeah. to mind for, for both Absolutely.
3: families. Absolutely. Um, and you can't separate that from them. You can't se- separate that from them. You can't separate how hard James Polk worked as president and, and how hard um, just about everyone in the Clement families worked toward, towards the goals of, of Tennessee or the United States as a whole. Um, and, and that's one of the things we, we connect down at our museum is – how those stories of that hard work, even at a local level, can really mean something larger to to the United States as a whole. Uh, and, and that education there, we're a prime spot to, to, to be able to teach these things. Uh, that ripple effect generation.
1: and those connections are really what history's hook is all about. Absolutely. That, Although uh, Frank Clement passed away in 1969, the effects of his mm-hmm. tenure as governor of Tennessee will have long-lasting effects. Um, Mr. Bob, your your time in Congress and the positions that you've held at Cumberland University, at TVA, and and elsewhere will have huge ranging implications for the history of this state for for many years uh, uh, as well. I, I think it's it's fascinating. One of the most interesting parts of studying history are making all of these connections and and what they all mean. What what's on the agenda for you now, Mr. Bob, in your life? You you left Congress uh, in. Uh, uh, after 15 years there, wh- what are you doing outside of politics? Are you still engaged in politics?
2: Well, I want to be your assistant, Tom. <laughs> 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 no, I've enjoyed it so much, just being with you and your knowledge. Well, thank you so much. It's an and, honor for me. And appreciation for history. I'll tell you where I'm spending most of my time now. I, at University of Tennessee, I got my college degree in real estate. And, uh, but I've always bought and sold my own real estate, but I've never tried to help others. And so I'm affiliated with Mossy Oak Properties in Williamson County, Franklin. And so I'm affiliate broker for them, and I've got six listings. Okay. All in Williamson County right now. Huh. But uh, uh, selling those properties and all that commercial and and residential, and so I'm enjoying that, and I've held myself out to be a business consultant and work with people to try to solve problems. Are you work still engaged in politics? Yeah, not as much. Not, not really. Not like I used to be. I, I can't believe I'm not, and uh, but uh, I really haven't been, and uh, like I was. Once, once upon a time, I, I still care, and I still vote.
1: Do you still stay in touch with your I
2: stay, I stay in touch, and I'm on friends. the board of the former members of Congress Association. We have an office in Washington, D.C., so I have to go up there regularly. And Zach's got me uh, working hard on the Clement Museum that we're trying to take to a new level, and with his leadership and expertise, I think we can do that.
1: Well, it's a a wonderful place. We'll encourage our listeners to go to Dixon and see that museum. Uh, Your book, Presidents, Kings, and Convicts, My Journey from the Tennessee Governor's Residence to the Halls of Congress, is a wonderful read filled with (laughs) some incredible stories. We've only touched the surface today. It was published in 2016. Uh, much has changed in politics, even just since you published the book. Uh, But I think your words of wisdom, the last third of your book or last quarter of your book, uh, really are sort of the big picture views of of your views of politics and and how things have changed. Uh, I hope people will get out there and and read your book. Where can they find your book?
2: Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, and maybe other bookstores as well. Uh, I didn't write it to be a bestseller. I wrote it uh, because I—it was on my bucket list of things to do. But I spent two years of my life, day, night, and weekend, uh, writing the book. I will say, Tom, it's not dated. Uh, uh, nothing has changed in Washington D.C. And I talk, spent a lot of time talking about comp- well I talk about compromise, but also. Uh, where you get your news. I, I I really want people to get it from a lot of different sources rather than one source, right. which I think is very detrimental. But I also uh, tell the stories about growing up in the governor's residence, but then I get heavy into U.S. policy, U.S. Congress, and politics about fixing Congress and fixing America. And I'll mention that... Uh in
3: addition to Amazon and the Internet and, and all these bookstores, we also sell it in the gift shop at the museum. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it, it's applicable to, to what we talk about. So, yeah, we, we definitely sell it. And a couple signed copies,
2: too. All right. Uh, Zach Kinsel, thank you shop, so yeah. much.
1: Mr. Bob Clement, thank you so much for spending two hours with us on History's Hook. Thank you for your service to our country.
2: Thank you, Tom.
1: We end the show with this quote from our guest, former Congressman Bob Clement, who ended many speeches during his long and varied career, saying, I am only one— but one is 100% greater than none, and that which I can do, I will do, so help me God. Thank you to our sponsor, Pro of Murray and Giles County for their support. Thank you, the listeners, for tuning in each week. Join us again next week as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's
0: Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Saturday at 8 a.m. and Sunday at 6 p.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by Pro of Murray and Giles County. Pro, faster to any disaster.